This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Rob Breckenridge with you. Look, the AstraZeneca vaccine is uh, approved in Canada, and it's certainly a, a part uh, of our arsenal in, in trying to, to respond to this virus and get a step ahead of it. And so certainly drama around this vaccine is, is, is not helpful. So yesterday was a, a very good news day for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Today, not so much. So AstraZeneca yesterday reporting some of the results from their clinical trial in the U.S., and it all looked really encouraging. 79% efficacy, 100% efficacy in uh, you know, preventing severe disease outcomes and hospitalizations. Pretty good. And, you know, we've seen some encouraging real-world data, too. But then today, and in fact, very early today, just after midnight, as a matter of fact, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in the U.S. put out a statement saying that there was some questions about the data, an incomplete view of the efficacy data. Uh, this from the, the independent body that was overseeing those clinical trials. So I think the short version is maybe that AstraZeneca cherry-picked the data a little bit. But then, but why? Why did they need to? Uh, because it was obviously inevitably going to result in, in this uh, you know, PR fiasco for them. And the underlying data still seems really good. So joining us uh, to talk a bit more about this story and some of the, the challenges we're facing in the meantime and uh, trying to, to contain these variants and prevent the situation uh, from getting out of control uh, here in Canada. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease uh, physician, associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, clinician, investigator with Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Bogosh, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back, Rob. So your, your thoughts on, you know, the, the last 24 hours here and uh, what it means for AstraZeneca and, you know, perceptions around this vaccine? What a mess. It's so preventable. Yeah. It's such a mess. And it's most of it is just needless. Right. So you got a press release of their interim, not the final, the interim data results. And it says 79 percent efficacy. That's fine. That's great. Safe, mm -hmm. good efficacy. No reports of severe illness or death looks good to us. Great. Then, of course, as you point out, like it's not every day your data safety monitoring board comes out at midnight and says, uh, what are you doing with this data? This isn't entirely kosher, which rate like that raises red flags. And then AstraZeneca comes out and says, no, no, no. The, we, we said we we're going to release the data as of this date. This is when we cut the data. It's fair, fair. And that's what the data said as of this date. And then we're hearing from other reports that, you know, indeed, if you include all the data, uh, more recent data and all the data, the efficacy is still really, really good. It's up to 74 percent. I think the range was 69 to 74 percent, which you, just to be totally clear, that's fantastic. That's yeah. really good in an era of circulating variants of concern. 
Like, that's a very, very good vaccine. So why didn't you just tell us that in the first place? Why do you have to go through this whole rigmarole? Um, and, of course, you know, all this does is erode public trust in what's probably a very good vaccine. You know, and to be fair, some of the drama around this vaccine has, has not been the company's fault. Like the mixed messages from regulators in Canada around whether this vaccine is appropriate for seniors and the way, you know, mm-hmm. European countries might have overreacted to, to some concerns around this, this vaccine. Mm-hmm. But certainly this is on the company, isn't it? This is a real yeah. misstep oh, well, on their part. I totally agree. And in fact, if we want to really rewind time, their very first clinical trial was mm-hmm a bit of a fiasco too. They got this dosing mix up. So some places were getting uh, one dose of the vaccine, other places were getting another dose of the vaccine, and they just smushed it all together and called it a big clinical trial, which was like about as sloppy as you can get. I mean, it was really sloppy science and and not not reasonable. So they, they shot themselves in the foot a few times, but yes, it isn't entirely their fault. We actually, yeah, I totally agree. And then of course, there are what are apparently very, very rare side effects, including blood clotting. Of course, they have to be put in the appropriate context. These things look like they're extraordinarily rare. Still can't ignore it. Still can't brush it under the rug. Still need to understand it a bit more. But you have to. We have to acknowledge that that exists. Um, and you know, I, so some of it's the company's doing. Some of it isn't. But at the end of the day, based on what we know now, we have to timestamp all our conversations. But based on what we know now. It's a good vaccine. It can save people's lives. Like, I hope people take the opportunity to get it uh, when they have the chance because it's, you know, there's real world data. You know, you see the new data from the UK looks fantastic. And it's, it truly is saving people's lives. So at this point now, we're, we're, I guess we're waiting some further response from, from the company. They, they need to address this, right? Yeah, I, and they said they're going to do it in the next 48 yeah. hours. And I think what we're going to see is what the Washington Post somehow got their hands on, which was that 69 to 74% efficacy. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but I imagine they're going to say, okay, yeah, based on February, blah, 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 this is what our data showed, and this is what we reported. But, uh, you, you know, if we look at more recent data, it's going to be uh, in the 69 to 74% range. I think that's probably what's going to happen. I think the key thing here, and a, a little bit of speculation on my behalf, but the key thing here is, all they were talking about was efficacy, efficacy, efficacy. That's important. What they weren't saying in any of this was safety, safety, safety. Yeah. That's great. You don't want to hear about any safety concerns. Uh, I mean, efficacy, sure, it's important. But, like, i got to say, the 79 versus 74%, like, if I know everyone's really hung up on those numbers, but really I just shrug my shoulders and say, look, you're definitely in that realm of this being a very, very good product, regardless of what those numbers show. Uh, and I just, I continue to recommend it, but, but here we are. Well, and I do wonder, maybe this is also speculation, but you know, the U S is sitting on tens of millions of doses of this vaccine. There's been some pressure for them to, to release some of that. They are, loaning a total of four million to to canada and mexico but and i do wonder if this is going to affect its push to get emergency authorization use in the united states and if it's not approved in the u.s what becomes of those doses and then you got the perception now that the u.s is dumping a vaccine they don't want um I, so i don't know i mean do you think this affects its its use in the u.s at this point honestly i i don't i don't really know but i kind of don't think so the fda will very likely do what the FDA does, which is ignore everybody, 
look at the data in a very independent manner and come to its own conclusion. So this fiasco, this rigmarole, it certainly is damaging in the sense that it does erode public trust and you need the utmost public trust if you're having a public health initiative so big as a vaccine rollout plan. But I don't think that they'll consider this. I think they're just going to, you know, skip through and shut out all the BS and they'll just look at the data. You know, does this work or not? Yeah. What is the safety? What is the efficacy? Show me the data and then they'll come to their own conclusions. And they're, they're, they've actually been very, very good with that throughout the pandemic, minus uh, a few rapid tests that, I think the, they allowed, but uh, apart from that, they've been very, very good. Yeah, yeah, and as you say, I mean, the data looks good, so that that's that's the takeaway here. Um, you know, it's interesting too because you mentioned the the data out of the UK, and and you know, this vaccine's making a big difference over there. But I mean, it also speaks to to the enormity of the the situation there, where they really got backed into a corner once this this variant really got out of hand. We're kind of at a tipping point here, aren't we, when it comes to trying to contain these variants to try to prevent that kind of a situation? Alberta holding the line for now and easing any further restrictions. Just kind of big picture looking at Canada and the battle against these variants. Where do you see us at right now? Uh, we're in a really precarious spot because we don't have a significant degree of population level immunity, either from recovering from natural infection, either from vaccination. We just don't yet have a significant degree of population level immunity. The variants are they're more transmissible. They just are. And there's more and more of them. So we got to be careful here. And, and, and uh, you know, I think Alberta is doing the right thing by not... Um, opening up further because it's just going to make matters worse in a shorter period of time. I think and we should, I should we've got to avoid a third lockdown, right? Many parts of the country are in a third wave. All we got to do is be smart for a couple of months, really a couple of months while we really start to ramp up the vaccine program, which has started like the vaccine ramp up has started. The data shows it. the number of vaccines administered per day is going up and up and up. And it's going to take about a month, month and a half, two months or so to really get a significant number of Canadians with at least a first dose of vaccine in arms. It's going to help. You've seen it work in Israel. You've seen it work in the United States. You've seen it work in the UK. Like these things work. They really, really do. We just need to ramp this up as quickly as possible, see if we can avoid a third shutdown and really uh, temper that third wave. Absolutely. We'll leave it there. I always appreciate the insight, Dr. Bogosh. Thanks for joining us here today. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. You as well. All right. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist physician at the University of Toronto, Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. So some interesting points he makes and this whole situation with AstraZeneca and just kind of the situation we're facing here in the short term in this country. Well, yeah, speaking of news uh, out of Ottawa, and this is, I think, an important step. Canada joining with uh, the U.S. and the U.K. in announcing uh, the European Union as well, sanctions against Chinese officials with regard uh, to what's happening to Uyghur Muslims in China. So, look, this is not directly related to the plight of the two Michaels. and, And, you know, frankly, maybe it should be. Maybe this is kind of the response that that situation warrants. But it's good to see that Canada is using this tool that we have at our disposal, uh, the so-called Magnitsky Law that Canada passed. Now, it helps Canada, I suppose, to be doing this in concert with our allies as opposed to, to doing this alone. But look, let's not pretend China's not going to notice. Clearly they have, and they're not happy about it. Now, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this announcement and why it represents a, a positive step in the right direction as someone who certainly played a role in uh, Canada finally adopting Magnitsky Law, uh, Marcus Kolga 
is a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, director of this, their Disinfo Watch, uh, disinfowatch.org program. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mark, it's great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Uh, so let me get your initial reaction when you heard about this. I mean, obviously you were, were pleased to see this. Were you surprised to see this, though? Uh, no, I mean, I wasn't surprised. We knew that these uh, some sort of form of sanctions were coming. The U.S. already uh, applied sanctions uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, actually. Um, and so we knew that uh, the U.K. and the EU would eventually uh, you know, catch up and, and apply their own sanctions. And it was great that uh, Canada finally decided to work with our partners. I mean, we had a, a situation just a few weeks ago where um, the same group applied sanctions on Russian human rights abusers and, and Canada sort of stood on the sidelines uh, and and literally applauded them for doing it, but didn't do anything themselves. So uh, in this case, it's it's great that uh, Canada did join them. But I think that had we not joined them, uh, we would have really been an outlier amongst our allies in uh, in not doing so. So, yeah, great news that we did it. Uh, I think it's a good first step. There's a lot more that should be done with this tool, certainly, as you mentioned, with uh, with regards to two Michaels and uh, and uh, the situation with the Uyghurs and the genocide happening in uh, Xinjiang. Well, talk about how this works. Uh, so, so it's this yeah. this law gives us the ability then to to level sanctions against individuals and essentially Chinese government officials. So, how does that work? Well, that's a great question, Rob, and thanks for asking it. Um, I think a lot of people are sort of foggy on what sanctions are. I think. The sort of the traditional notion that we all remember, are, you know, sectoral sanctions. So banning all exports and imports of, of various goods, resources, oil, that sort of a thing. Um, you know, I spent the last nearly a decade uh, lobbying for this legislation. What it does, it allows uh, governments like Canada's to, when they've identified uh, specific human rights abusers, these are official uh, that uh, work within governments, uh, within regimes, um, other individuals who are working with them, and those who engage in corruption. It allows us to place targeted sanctions on those individuals, so not entire sectors, not areas of governments uh, or countries, and not entire countries, but specific individuals. And what these sanctions do is that it freezes their assets. So if they've... Uh, if they've accumulated any sort of ill-gotten gains, a lot of times what happens with these sorts of regimes, especially corrupt ones, is that they export them. They try to hide their assets abroad, and we know that uh, a lot of them do that, both the Russian and Chinese regimes. A lot of those officials are using Canada as a place to hide those, those assets. So it allows us to detect those, and once we detect them, we freeze them, and it bans them from entering Canada at all. And this is a problem because we know that they like traveling abroad. Uh, they, they don't necessarily stay at home, and, and Canada is a destination for them. So the, the whole, the, the effect of these sanctions, uh, if the regime is used properly and we, we were constantly updating these lists with human rights abusers, is that it's supposed to deter this sort of behavior and change this, modify that sort of behavior to stop them from doing this sort of thing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we haven't used this, our, legisla our legislation or the sanctioning tool, the Magnitsky sanctioning tool, since 2018. So the, t the deterrence effect has sort of uh, been lost a little bit, um, and we need to start using it again in order to, uh, 
to uh, modify that sort of behavior. And, you know, we know that, we, you know, there's, a, there's an entire list of people who we can, we can sanction with regards to uh, the two Michaels, the, the t- guy at the top. We're not going to sanction him, Xi Jinping. He's the guy that uh, makes all these decisions. But there are those mm-hmm. under him who we can start sanctioning. And, you know, if uh, China's reaction to these last uh, round of sanctions is, is any sort of, uh, uh, you know, indicator of their effectiveness, you know, the the hair on fire and the, the unhinged response clearly means that they will be having an effect. So it's something that we need to be using a little bit more. It's a smart tool. Politically, it's, it's a very safe tool for us to use. They're the smart, smart sanctions, we call them, um, and we need to start using them uh, to greater effect. And, and look, and, and this is a meaningful response to, to China's human rights violations. And certainly the prime minister and his cabinet took some flack for, for abstaining on that vote recently in the House of Commons on whether yeah. to, to label this, recognize this as a genocide. And, and I think that, that that was deserved flack, mind you. But at the same time, this, this is a recognition that what's happening there is a gross violation of human rights. But th- does it seem like mixed messages from the government? How, how do you reconcile that? Look, I, you know, I think we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the Prime Minister and his staff. Um, this is a very complicated situation. Um, on the one hand, we do see that there's a genocide happening uh, in Xinjiang, and it's, it's a, these are mass atrocities that are happening. Um, we have two Canadians. We have three Canadians uh, in prison. We, we, we can't forget that Hussein Jalil, a uh, Canadian Uyghur, has been in a Chinese prison since 2006. We don't even know where he is right now. He hasn't received consular access in years. His family hasn't spoken to him. has lost complete contact with him for years. Um, we have these Canadians who are imprisoned, and I think we're, what we're doing is we're hoping that something will change, that the Chinese government will change its mind for some reason and release them if we tread lightly. Um, you know, it hasn't worked so far. Uh, I don't suspect it'll work. You know, the, the prime minister has said that, you know, he's calling on a on greater transparency in this entire process that the Michaels are going through. Um, you know, he can demand all he wants from the Chinese government, but they're not going to change their behavior until there's a consequence. And that's really what these sanctions are, is is presenting a consequence for a certain type of behavior. And, and we haven't done this yet. We haven't, with regards to the Michaels, there hasn't been any consequence. There's no reason why the Chinese government, who engages in this sort of mass human rights abuse, I mean, this, they don't think or act like we do. They don't respect human rights. They don't, you know, they, they're, unless they are, are faced with a consequence for the actions that they're engaging in, they will not change them. So we have to start understanding this. And, you know, again, I, I respect the, the prime minister and the, the, the very difficult situation he's in, but he has to start really waking up to the, to the reality of the situation and actively working with, you know, Joe Biden, who seems to be willing to work with us on, uh, on going after the names and the individuals, the officials who are responsible for the detention of the two Michaels, their families as well. They like sending their kids to school here. We should stop that. These are the things we need to start doing instead of just hoping that there will be some change. Well, we get an angry statement from the Chinese embassy in Ottawa, and it says Canada is in no position to act as a teacher on human rights issues or to tell China what to do. So, again, yeah, yeah. maybe an angry response isn't unexpected, but what does it tell us about the longer-term impact of this approach? Well, look, I'm, we've seen time and time again, any time... Uh, you know, whether it's Canada or the United States or any other allies, when we stand up to China, 
there's always going to be some sort of a, a response. It's, uh, ultimately, these are not going to amount to much. Uh, China relies on us for its trade. Um, you know, we buy Chinese goods, which is also something that we should be leveraging, uh, and we're not doing that. Uh, so China can go continue stomping its feet, but it's not, I don't think that it's, there's going to be any sort of any more significant consequence. I would be concerned about other other Canadians who are in China, and maybe this is something we should be looking at raising the alert level and 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 asking Canadians or telling Canadians that they shouldn't be uh, traveling to China at all. Maybe that's you know that could be a consequence. They've already done it once. Uh, or twice, um, they may do it again. So that that could be a problem. But I don't think there are any other very serious consequences for Canada. Um, and, you know, I think if we were to apply more sanctions, we could expect the same sort of bluster from the uh, Chinese ambassador, ambassador in Ottawa. But I don't think this will anything will affect uh, Canadians specifically. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, Marcus. I uh, always appreciate the conversation here. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Anytime. Thanks, Rob. All right, take care. Marcus Kolga, uh, Senior Fellow of the McDonald laurier Institute, Director of the, their Disinfo Watch program, disinfowatch.org. And as mentioned, uh, he was a part of that campaign that uh, took a lot longer than it should have, mind you, to, to convince Canada to introduce its own Magnitsky Law, which we have. And now we're finally willing to put it to use in concert, mind you, with uh, the U.S., the U.K., and, and the European Union. Got another blockbuster deal, though, to talk about uh, in the uh, world of business. Last week, it was a $25 billion-ish uh, deal between Rogers and Shaw, uh, really rocking the telecom industry, and now the rail industry. We've got a $25 billion deal here, Canadian Pacific Railway, uh, looking to purchase Kansas City Southern. And so it's more than just a, a merger of these companies. And what we're really likely to see resulting from this, and it's kind of exciting, is the idea of a, a, a North American rail network, a 20,000-mile network linking Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. So this, this is a really big deal. Now, there is the other question in all of this as well. well. What does it mean for the products that get shipped via rail? Specifically, what about crude by rail? I think ideally that that would move as much as possible through pipelines, but as we've seen, that that poses various challenges. Now, for example, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, at least for now, looks to be off the table. I know there's this lawsuit that some states are involved in to try to revive the project, but let's assume it it stays as it is. Can crude by rail, and in particular the changes resulting from this new deal, uh, be a viable backup plan? as a way of getting more product uh, to the Gulf Coast. Now, there's some different economics when it comes to, to oil by rail. So maybe some, some reason, though, for some cautious optimism. But joining us to try to break all of this down as much as we can at this point is Rory Johnston. He's Managing Director and Market Economist at Price Street Incorporated, pricestreet.ca. Rory, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for, for having me, Rob. First of all, your thoughts on just how big a deal this is, not just the size of the transaction, but just the idea of, you know, creating this this North American rail network. I mean, it, it seems pretty huge. I mean, it's it, it's obviously a, a massive deal just in the scale, but also, I think also the, you know, the symbol uh, coming, you know, you know, fairly recently after the conclusion of our, you know, revamped NAFTA and the USMCA deal. Yeah really kind of tying that uh, that full three-country North America uh, union, uh, you know, more into 
you know, direct commercial kind of connection there. Now, I mean, it's, it's important to note that there, you know, isn't necessarily any any new track, you know, any new tracks or any new locomotives being added to the system. But what, what it does mean is that it's putting a larger portion of the existing system under kind of single management, uh, which should uh, help with, you know, uh, logistics and planning and, so, and and reduce some of those frictions on the line. So I would say. You know, this is, you know, you always hear synergies and you always hear about those from the perspective of, you know, cost savings at the corporate level. I think in here you can think of them similar, but, you know, uh, coming coming in shipping costs. So kind of in more in that intermediate space for everything from crude to canola to coal. Yeah, and I think unlike the Rogers-Shaw deal, where the government may still have something to say about it, there's really no issues here in terms of this going ahead, right? So it's likely, uh, as they say, full steam ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on on kind of uh, antitrust law or, or right. competition law in this area, but uh, but I would agree that from what I've read, it seems that mm-hmm. uh, this deal seems less likely to cause. You know, this is the third attempt uh, that CP's had at, at, at an expansion or, or a merger of this kind. Uh, but what's different about this this is that there's very little overlap between the existing rail network, so it wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily increase CP's dominant position in a particular region. What it does is it adds kind of uh, additionally to the existing network. So CP very much geographically reaches kind of, you know, coast to coast in Canada from west to east. Uh, and Kansas City is much more of a, a north-south. So what this does is it really connects that northeast system to a, a you know, a, a north-south uh, system. And more or less, it, as it applies to oil by rail, creates kind of a, an additional kind of uh, contiguous point of, of uh, non-pipe egress uh, between Hardesty and U.S. Gulf Coast refiners. Right. So let, let's zero in on that, because on the surface, it, it does look like uh, a really appealing way of moving product to the Gulf Coast, especially in the absence of, of Keystone XL. But what do we have to factor in in, in assessing how, how viable this is? Yeah, so I would, I would split it into, into, into a couple different pieces. So first, uh, just kind of thinking to contextualize the difference between oil and pipelines in terms of shipping, I think most people agree that the pipelines, you know, I think everyone in the know agrees that pipelines are a preferable way of shipping crude. But as you said in the in the intro, that's, you know, where we've been having continual uh, problems getting additional pipe capacity out of uh, the province and out of Western Canada broadly. So, you know, if that, you know, say rail, and sorry, say pipelines cost between kind of Eight to eight to twelve dollars a barrel uh, to ship in terms of uh, the you know uh, factoring in that discount between WCS and WTI. Um, oil by rail, you know, it's always a moving target, but I, I usually think between about fifteen and twenty dollars a barrel. Um, because, however, you know, and historically rail has always been a useful pressure valve for when the, the the pipeline system became overwhelmed, at least temporarily. Like when a couple of years ago, when we got that outage on on the on the pre-existing Keystone line, you know, rail was able to kind of step into a degree, not not fully, but but enough to kind of relieve some of the potential pressure. Uh, what's different now is that it seems less likely that it's going to be a um, uh, an overall pressure release and, and may start to become a, a structural part of the egress system, call it call it the piece of the pipeline system on the tracks. Um, but why that's important is that, you know, that, that discount is all, that WCS differential, that discount for Canadian crude is always going to kind of rest around that price of marginal transport. And now that we're in a situation where rail is going to be that marginal transport, anything that that reduces the average cost of that kind of transport system will, will mean kind of overall larger net backs to the Canadian sector. So even if, even if it's called, you know, a couple dollars a barrel here or there, it doesn't seem like a lot. 
but it will actually add up to a lot because it will probably, you know, in large part, it'll be applied to, you know, millions and millions of barrels uh, all the way back, not just the barrels that are, you know, making that incremental change. It's been a lot of fluctuation, obviously, in, in oil prices recently, and, and certainly yeah. there's much less of a gap between WTI and Western Canadian Select, but, you know, prices have been bouncing around, and maybe that speaks to some of the, the just the volatility in, in the markets and, you know, the uncertainty of, of where things are headed. So, how does that factor in, in in assessing all of this? Yeah, so like just to give you your, your listeners a sense, so around you know today we're at about give or take a ten dollar differential for uh, WCS under WTI. Now the overall price of oil, the WTI price, is shifting around all over the place. Uh, you know we're up and down, and we're we're down quite considerably over the last week. Um, but what we're really focusing here is on that differential because that's the piece that's going to more or less pay for the economics of pipelines versus rail. Uh, so that $10 a barrel really isn't covering the incremental, you know, cost, the, the necessary additional cost of oil by rail. So that's why, you know, right now we're still, you know, even after a rebound from our lows, you know, uh, in the worst of COVID and whatever it was, you know, the summer of that year, the summer of 2020, uh, we're still only shipping a bit, you know, just shy of 200,000 barrels of crude a day uh, for export. Uh, as of the end of the year, and the differentials have actually fallen or, or have actually you know narrowed even more since then. So you know we still aren't at a stage where we're where we honestly need outright additional egress right now. We will eventually, as production comes back online, and you know eventually we get you know more more production additions. But as of right now, the system is clearly uh, kind of you know short oil, honestly. Uh, and what we're going to see is that differential begin to widen out gradually until you reach that 15 to $20 barrel level as all of these companies that, that took crude offline because of the price route uh, in 2020, as those barrels get added back in. And that's what's going to pay for that increased rail, and then we'll start to see those rail numbers start to creep up. And I think that's, you know, it's only in that point, in a couple months, maybe upwards of a year, that we're going to see uh, what kind of difference, you know, the, the cost could make, that, that response function on rail. In terms of the production side, because, you know, as you say, then I think demand is, is going to start driving that production. Obviously, price is, is going to impact uh, investment decisions as well. So what, what's kind of the, the, the driving factor then in, in all of this? Is it going to be demand? Is that what's going to spur production? Is that what's going to lead to, to price increases? So we're in an extremely precarious position in the global oil system because, you know, we are having this, you know, demand jump back. And I think, you know, everyone's waiting on a resumption of air travel and vacations and business travel. And, you know, we're starting to see promising signs of that in the United States, where I think we're back up to 70 percent of pre-COVID levels for the domestic TSA trips. But, you know, we're still a decent amount, you know, still, a, you know, five, six, seven million barrels a day below our pre-COVID levels of global consumption. Um, so we're, we're going to need to get that back up in order to retest, you know, how tight the market really is. Uh, but on the other side, we have a tremendous amount, about an equivalent amount, you know, call it six to eight million barrels a day of crude being held offline by OPEC. So it, it's really kind of a, of a, of a to and fro as, as, as we get a, a bit of an activity boost back as people start to get optimistic. Um, and but now it feels like we're you know we're tipping back down. You know, case counts globally are on the rise in many countries. People are starting to get cautious again, and I think that's part of why the market's selling off uh, in terms of the WTI kind of overall global oil market. Um, you know, OPEC, some of the ministers wrote today. You know, obviously seeing the price crashing and saying, you know, don't worry, don't worry, we're not going to add you know crude back until it's you know it's demanded, et cetera, et cetera. We want to 
keep a healthy market. But, you know, uh, the, a lot of the indicators in the market are starting to show that while things were honestly fairly tight, uh, you know, for the past month or two, things seem to be kind of loosening up a little bit in the spot market. And that's, you know, confirming some of the fears uh, and making people remember that there's all this other crude sitting around in the global market. So we're at a precarious point, but I, you know, it's a it's an eloquent way of saying both supply and demand are are, are very very volatile and uncertain right now. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Roy, appreciate the uh, insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, cheers. Uh, Rory Johnston, uh, some thoughts from him on uh, this uh, deal involving Canadian Pacific, what it's going to mean then for our ability to ship products. Uh, he's uh, Managing Director, Market Economist at uh, Price Street Incorporated. As we mentioned before, the uh, top of the hour, uh, the CEO of Cineplex, very frustrated that uh, Alberta is keeping movie theaters closed for now. And, you know, looking across the country, the situation isn't that much different. So there, there, there's some minor differences when it comes to rules around movie theaters. But for the most part, and, and this has been largely the case really for the last year, movie theaters have not been operating. It, it's been a real devastating year for movie theaters. Now, when it comes to movies, movies are still getting made. Movies are still being released. As we've seen, there are various options now, you know, with HBO Max in the U.S., Disney Plus, Netflix, constantly churning up movies. And some movies that were set to go to theaters, originally intended to be theatrical releases, have found other homes, like the Coming to America sequel that uh, landed on Amazon Prime. But look, the studios, I think, still recognize that they need movie theaters, and obviously the movie theaters need the studios going forward. We mentioned earlier, Marvel Studios has four releases set for this year. They've pushed that back a little bit. Black Widow is going to come out in May. That's uh, coming out in July now. But there are some other big releases that are set for May. So we're not far off from uh, studios testing the waters a little bit again. The film Tenet came out last summer. Didn't go so well in movie theaters, all things considered. What should have otherwise been a, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster. So it's a really interesting uh, commentary piece up at globalnews.ca today, looking at the impact of the last year, what this has meant to movie theaters, and maybe how, to some extent, our our own expectations around the movie experience have changed. So joining us to talk a bit more is the uh, author of this piece, uh, Victor Stiff, is a senior critic at The Shelf, and as mentioned, you can read his piece today up at globalnews.ca. Victor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I think there, there seems to be maybe a more of a, a general sense of optimism that come summer, come later this year, things are going to start to get back to normal. But kind of what do you make of the situation that the theaters are in at the moment? Well, they're really chomping at the bit, the bit to get people back into the theaters. So as soon as it's possible for them to do so, they're going to jump on that. Um, as it stands, they can't really make a fair profit off of their their big hundred million dollar movies unless they have them in theaters. So they shuffled a lot of the stuff that was supposed to come out last year and they bumped it to this year. And if theaters don't open up soon, they're just going to have to keep sliding things over. Well, it's interesting. And I think for now, there are going to be some movies that even going through the year, I think, um, you know, the uh, Warner Brothers movies that are set for this year, they're going to go with for now, aren't they? The, the simultaneous release, the in theaters and on HBO Max, right? 
Right. There's never been a better time to be a fan of movies. We have more access to them, and there's more movies coming out than ever before, even if we can't see them in a theater. But a lot of the studios are shifting the priorities. So uh, HBO and Warner Brothers is a great example where after releasing Tenet last year and just not seeing a, the profits they were hoping for, uh, they, they shifted to a new policy where a lot of this stuff is going to come out and you can catch it in a theater, but it will also be available on the streaming service. So you'll get to see a movie like Godzilla vs. Kong when it comes out March 31st. And, you know, you also have the opportunity to see it in a theater, but ultimately it's in the viewer's choice. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, up until this, you know, that relationship has always been mutual, that the studios need the movie theaters. Obviously, the movie theaters need the studios. Uh, but how much has that changed? Do, do studios still need movie theaters to, to the extent they once did? Well, theaters were the king of the hill for a long time. You know, it's synonymous. When you think of the movies, you think of going to a theater before you think of flipping on a streaming service or throwing in a DVD. But uh, people have more options than ever, and movie ticket sales have been declining since all the way back in 2002. There's just a lot of things vying for our, our attention right now. So the theaters, you know, there's, we're not indebted to going to the theaters. If there's a better option, we can do that. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, too, because maybe it depends on, on the sort of movie theater experience, um, you know, that, that maybe theaters might still have a leg up when it comes to, you know, the IMAX experience, as an example, or even just, you know, the big blockbuster spectacles and that whole theater experience. But what does it mean for movies that aren't the big blockbusters, you know, movies that, that are smaller, more art house in nature? Has, has that really changed, do you think? Well, I think this is the most important part of the conversation surrounding cinema right now is that it's either these hundred million dollar blockbusters or these very small, you know, two, three, four million dollar pictures. That middle ground, like in the 90s and early 2000s, you might go see a Harrison Ford detective movie or, you know, a, a romantic thriller. Uh, that's just not available anymore because to get you into the theater, they need that big, flashy, over the top kind of superhero movie to draw you in. And what's happening is a lot of the filmmakers who were making those very um, mature, more nuanced, sort of middle-of-the-road films, they're sliding over to streaming services. So you have a director like uh, Steve McQueen, who's one of the most acclaimed guys working today, and he just put some movies on Amazon Prime, and he called it a TV series. And, you know, they're like an hour and a half or two hours long, but it's a miniseries, and you can see this author filmmaker working at the height of his powers at home, and then you can go and run to the theaters when they are open again and see Fast and the Furious. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I remember a couple of years ago, and, and uh, we did a segment on our program about the 20th anniversary of 1999, and why some feel that it was maybe the, the, the best year in movies. And you go back and look, and it just, you know, it ran the gamut in terms of the kinds of movies that were being released, all, you know, the big-name directors were making some interesting movies. You know, there, there was certainly more variety then, it seems, than there is now. And as you say, that that's you know things have changed dramatically. So there, there's when it comes to what's going in theaters. There's a big gulf. But then at the same time, as you alluded to earlier, maybe there is a renaissance of sorts. Those kinds of movies are still getting made. They're just not going into theaters. Exactly. And if I can get five Steve McQueen films in a month rather than waiting for them <laughs> to hit theaters over, you know, like it'd probably yeah. take ten years to put out. Five movies, like I'm all for it. You know, just give me the best stories available, and I, I want to just sit there and be thrilled. It's possible that you know we're we're just going to be craving, you know, a sense of normalcy. We'll be going back to theaters just because you know we we want 
we just want to feel like things are normal. But um, I don't know how sustainable that is if, if we'll see it at all. And so one of the points you make in, in your piece today is that theaters are going to have to get creative. It's not enough to say, hey, this movie comes out Friday, come see it. What more do you think is going to be necessary to, to draw people back into theater? Well, I come at it from the perspective of a movie diehard. I literally, I live for the movies. I go there as much as possible. And even I'm very hesitant to go back into a theater when they open up. Uh, so the average moviegoer, like we, the average person sees about four movies in the theater a year. Um, so that person is not going to be enticed to come back uh, at a potential health risk. So theaters have to do everything possible, which means if they have to take a, a bump on ticket prices, uh, if they have to have theme nights where, you know, you pay maybe for the price of one ticket, you get some double headed headers, uh, maybe Q&As and community events. They can bring in filmmakers and do Zoom meetings, but they really have to, you know, buy for that dollar. They can't expect us to just come back because that's the way we did things before. In terms of using streaming as as a platform, you know, because Marvel's got the option of, of Disney Plus, the, the WB movies got the option of, of HBO Max. I, I I think the Marvel movies that are coming up this year, and there's four, and they talked about the dates today. I, I think those those movies are all destined for theaters. Are any of those set to debut at the same time on Disney Plus? Do you know? Um, I just got a press release from Disney this afternoon uh, talking about the shifting the strategy a bit. So I believe um, Black Widow, which is one of the big Marvel movies coming, um, will mm-hmm. arrive on Disney Plus Premier Access and in theaters. So oh, okay. uh, you can be at home and you can order it. And it's the price is about $30, which seems steep. But, you know, that's like the cost of two tickets. So for a family to stay at yeah, home exactly. and see a new Marvel movie for $30 is, is a bargain. So that'll be telling, won't it, that once things are starting to get back to normal and theaters are open, if people are still choosing to pay $30 to watch a new movie release at home, that, that could have a huge impact going forward, couldn't it? It could, but again, you know, movies have a secret weapon, and that's just the communal aspect, you know. Uh, we, we love to be together. We love to be in rooms with other people and join in the laughter. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy, but I've never once seen a stand-up special on TV that hit me the same way as even a mediocre special sitting in the crowd. <laughs> so, you know, movies will have that going for it. it it's just, you know, it's got to fight really hard because it's, it's not looking great now, but the potential is there for them to come back strong. It'll be interesting to see. Well, as mentioned, uh, people can read your piece. It's up at uh, globalnews.ca and uh, much more at thatshelf.com. Victor, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. Cheers. Uh, Victor Stiff, a senior critic at theshelf.com, and as mentioned, wrote this piece uh, for globalnews.ca on what the future looks like for the movie theater industry. So as he says, I mean, there's still reason to be optimistic about movie theaters. Theaters are maybe going to have to get a little creative going forward. It'll be interesting to see how they approach, you know, the ticket price issue. Do you increase ticket prices to make up for all this lost revenue over the last year, or... Do you lower ticket prices as a way of just really trying to encourage people to come back? So I'll be curious to see how that all plays out and, you know, whether people have that option. Do you watch the big Hollywood blockbuster at home? Is that the same as the movie theater experience? Maybe it's a little different if it's just, you know, you and your wife and it's a nice romantic comedy. Maybe it's almost better in a way. Just stay at home and curl up on the couch, right? So I don't know. Maybe that partly shapes how we view the, uh, the movie theater experience. Anyway, but I, I do miss going to the theaters. There, there is something special about watching a movie in a theater. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.